Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Thank you, Brent. Good morning, Sunridge. It's great to see you, whether you're here on campus or online. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, before we get started, you know, I grew up in Miami. And even though I grew up down there, um, my parents are both from Ohio. And uh, in the summers, we would um, go up to Ohio. My dad graduated from Ohio U, and he was working on his master's degree, so we would travel up there and hang out with all the family. Uh, we'd rent a house up there while he worked on his degree. And um, I got to spend a lot of time on my mom's side of the family uh, on a farm. Uh, Pop Reffitt, that's what we knew him as, Pop. Um, he, he had a farm. He's kind of like a gentleman farmer. He also happened to be the, uh, the sheriff and the mayor at one time of MacArthur, Ohio. Salute. A uh, little, little town just south of Columbus a bit. And, you know, being there visiting with him, uh, my parents would drop me off there for days. And uh, I got to experience farm life as a Miami guy. And so I learned all kinds of things, even as a little kid, you know, how to, how to hoe potatoes without chopping them up. And, you know, there's a, a definitely an art to how you dig up a potato. Um, and I can remember my grandpa getting really mad at me at first. I think he might have used some bad language at me even as a little kid because of the way I chopped them. I learned how to pick green beans and plant stuff and shuck corn and uh, how to skid on cow pies as well. I don't know if you know this, but cow pies, you know, like are like a perfect skidding shape for like an eight-year-old, and they kind of crust over on the top. And so if you hit them just right, you can carry out three or four feet on the slide. So these are things you do on a farm to entertain yourself. But Cindy... On the other hand, she grew up on a farm in her early years in Holland, Michigan. Her dad was a dairy farmer. So her, her farming blood runs a lot deeper than mine. In fact, uh, when we were kind of newly married, we were living in Huntington Beach, and we, we awakened to like this torrential downpour. And Cindy just kind of sat up in the bed, and she goes, Oh, my gosh, it's, what's going to happen to the crops? And I like looked at her, you know, from the blanks. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so that's how deep her farming blood goes, you know. So this story that Brent just read, The Sower and the Seed, it's, it's a farming story. But you really don't have to have farm experience to track with it. And uh, I'm sure you can look at it. And it's like, it's really, really simple, isn't it? It just seems like such a simple story. But that doesn't mean... It's elementary, or that it's only for beginners, because I think it's anything but. If you're just joining us, uh, maybe for the first Sunday, the first couple of Sundays, we're in a study of Luke's gospel, and we're doing it kind of according to the calendar. We started with Jesus' birth, 
at Christmas time, and we're going to carry that through to the resurrection on Easter Sunday. We've been taking chunks each week and inviting you to read along with us and then picking a section that we really dig into. And we said that Luke, about a third of Luke, has unique stories in it, unique things that don't appear in any of the other uh, Gospels. But this parable appears in three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John, which to me says how important it is that every gospel writer, at least, well, three out of four, um, is sure to put this thing in. And in fact, Jesus ends that story by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's like, this is really important. And he says that a farmer went out to sow his seed. And in, that, in the first century in Palestine, uh, you, farmers sowed uh, their plants from late October through December. And so pretty much Jesus' hearers, even if they didn't live the farm life, they are, uh, they're familiar with it because they see it happening every day. And so this is another time where Jesus takes like a normal thing that people see every day. And he, he uses it in a way that, that's powerful and teaches something that's really important for those that follow him to know. And so as a farmer would sow their grain or their seed, they would wear this bag, usually slung over their shoulder, and they would toss the seed in these rows. And as they did those seeds would fall on a variety of soils with a variety of outcomes. And we saw when Brent read, it's like some fell on a hard path where birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground so that its roots couldn't gain the depth that it needed to survive uh, drought. And then some fell on good soil, but these other indigenous plants also root there because it's good soil. And uh, they overcome the plant that the farmer really wants to see thrive by shading it or choking it out. And then some seed falls on the good soil, and it's fruitful. In fact, it says very fruitful. So you probably get it. And you're thinking, well, what are you going to talk about for the next 35 minutes, Britt? <laughs> as simple as it is, I think even the disciples need clarification on this. So may, maybe we do too. So let's see. But first off, I want, I want to point out that often we, we see this word parable in the Bible, and we, we interchange that word with stories, like parable equals story, which they are, but it, it doesn't, it's not really sufficient. It doesn't capture the whole idea of what a parable is and does. And, and Jesus says that in verse 9. He says, his disciples asked him what this parable meant. And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not understand. So what is a parable and its purpose? A parable is a story that reveals truth to one that will not be apparent to another. See, in the New Testament, parables serve a purpose. The people that get it, get it. And the people that don't, do not. 
And even explaining the parable will not help them because it is, it's a willful ignorance that Jesus is referring to here. And the whole key is what Jesus said when he completed the story. He said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, someone who is obstinate, who does not have ears to hear, or has an obstinate heart, will not be able to grasp the truth in the parable. For instance, have you ever known somebody that their behaviors or their choices, you could clearly see, are hurting them and, and those around them? And so you, you sit down with them or you approach them and you talk to them about it. And all they do is deny, deny, deny. They rationalize why they do this. They excuse it. Now, sometimes I think that people just know, but they just deny because they really don't want to own it. But my experience has been, maybe yours is the same, that oftentimes people just really, they don't want to see it. It's like that. I think the disciples here do get it, but they want to make sure that they really, really understand. And that's why they, even though it's so simple, they ask him, what does this parable mean? Which is a sign of someone who really wants to learn and really wants to understand. Even when they think they know, even when it's so simple, they're still inquiring of their rabbi asking questions to assure that they get all of it. They take on this posture of a learner. And isn't it true that so often we're like, isn't it easy just like to roll right into like all of our assumptions about the scripture or like, well, this means that. And it's like, of course, it's this. And then we just move on. And yet they're just kind of like slowing down the process here and saying, tell, tell us, Jesus, what this means. And then Jesus explains it. He gives us his own commentary in verse 11. He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. And then he goes through all four examples with kind of like an explanation. First off, those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not, so that they may not believe and be saved. And this first example is the only one in how Jesus explains it that really ventures beyond a normal uh, farming experience. Because there's no devil in farming, right? Uh, in the original story, Jesus said birds came and got it. But here, he's, he's opening up that story in a way that he didn't. And you know, st statistics show that the majority of professing Christians, majority of modern evangelicals believe in heaven, but they don't believe in the devil. And yet the Bible says he's a real being. I think he's different than we often think. I think that we give him too much credit. We blame the devil for a lot of our own stuff when we're really the problem. You get it. But the Bible says this being that's evil is a liar. And he, he lied from the beginning. And that affects, that, that lying is even applied to or affects how we understand Scripture, how we receive it. And the devil is never so busy on us as when 
the word of God starts to draw close to our heart. And I think that the devil attends every Bible-believing church. He might be sitting next to you right now. I don't know. Jesus said of the devil that he seeks only to steal, kill, and destroy. So the devil steals the seed. How in the world does he do that? How does he take it away before anything can happen? Well, mainly, I think what he does is he makes sermons seem boring. <laughs> Could never be the teacher. But in this case, the way the devil steals it, it steals it, it's like the truth of the scripture can never even get started. And if we just think through this grid that Jesus said that the devil uh, steals, kills, and destroys... We can look at it through that, grid, for, in that, through that grid. So, for instance, how does the devil steal the Scripture from us? He creates a distraction. Before we can even think about the Scripture, we're distracted. It can be a thought. It can be a person. It can be a concern. But the truth is right there in front of us, and our minds are elsewhere. We're distracted. He can kill the truth by causing a reaction which is different than a distraction. You guys know Newton's third law, that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction? The devil kills the scripture when he gives us a reaction. It lands on us, something touches us, something tweaks us, and we shut it down before it can ever take root. And then the devil can destroy Scripture when it lands on us through idolatry. That is, he doesn't even have to distract us or cause us to react to it. He can destroy us through our idolatry, which I, when, we, as idolatry, when we commit idolatry, we're really just saying that there's something else. We prefer an alternative to God. And so... What Satan can do is he can inject the scripture. He can load it up with so much that when it comes in, it's completely destroyed. It's like, you know, spam in your email. And you guys have all learned, most of us have, not to click on those things that don't sound like they're from the person that they seem to be from, right? Because if you click on it, it could just totally take over and give your computer a virus. And I think the devil can do that with the word of God and, and pile a bunch of other things into it that aren't part of it and thereby destroy the meaning of the scripture for us. So beware the devil when it comes to scripture. Number two, the example that Jesus explains, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. So it's like it has a short attention span. It's like it's interesting at first. There's belief initially, but there's a testing. There's something that kind of like almost immediately makes it impossible for the root to take for it to take root. Uh, a couple of years ago, I planted these bushes 
and uh, there are laurel bushes, and so I did a whole row of them, and um, you know, put them on dripper, and had them perfectly timed, and they're just thriving. It's like, this is amazing. Neighbors mentioned them. Like, those look so good. And um, then one day, like, I'm looking out the window, or like, we're outside, and it's like, man, some of those, they look dry. So, you know, I thought, well, I better water them. So I go over there and water them, and then, you know, and a lot of times with something like that, you can see it perk up, like, even in an hour. Well, these didn't perk up, and they just kind of, like, started laying over. So, like, finally went out there, and I was, like, you know, testing the drippers. Is water coming out? And, and uh, then I went to, like, because it was kind of sagging, I went to pick it up, and the whole plant came up in my hand, and all the roots were gone, and there was this, and, like, on the, on the very bottom of the wood, of the stem, it was all gnawed on. <laughs> Gopher, right? Gophers. Um... I thought they needed water. The problem was they had no roots. It was almost like a cartoon, really. You know, if they'd have just disappeared under the ground, I'd have said, yeah, yeah, I'm watching, you know, like cartoons now. Because a root to a plant, it, it nourishes things. And our spiritual roots nourish our soul. And our spiritual roots enable us to withstand the storms of life and the drought that comes and the wind. And those deep roots, by the way, are not just like deep teaching. The roots that come with Scripture are about roots in relationship, roots, roots in church fellowship, roots that cause us to stick with it through our questions and through the things that challenge us in being part of a church. It's those kind of roots that enable the Scripture to take root in our lives, because we all need roots in order to be resilient as Christians. And shallow beliefs are often those that we believe just because someone else said it, and we haven't really done our homework. It's like we're not fully convinced. We haven't walked through the different ways of looking at it. So deep roots doesn't just mean be stubborn as a Christian. A deep-rooted belief is something that is a meaningful belief that is well thought out and grounded. So how do I let God's word sink deep? It's by being sinking my roots with other people and processing the things that God is teaching me and the ways that God is challenging me. That's one of the reasons we love life groups here so much. It's not the only way. But like if you're not in a life group, I just encourage you to join a life group. And if you can't do that, you know, like, find a way to have those meaningful conversations about the things that you're either learning in church or in other places because you have to beware of shallow roots. Thirdly, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and so they don't mature. This seed actually grows. It has roots. It's in the good soil, but it's indiscriminate soil. Everything else grows there as well. So the picture there is like you have this healthy plant that it's growing, but like over time, a lot of other stuff grows up around it and takes its life from it. And every time I read this passage and I read that part, 
I think of the slopes I've had to take care of in houses out here. Because whatever I've planted on a slope, any, any slope owners, it's like, why do weeds grow so easily and gazania doesn't? I don't, I don't know. It's like it's so challenging. And you just have to be out there all the time after it. And, you know, another thing for me is my lawn. I like my grass to be uniform. There should be tall fescue in there. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you OCD about the different kinds of grass, whether it's crabgrass or Bermuda, where are my people right now? You're my people. Okay, thank you. It makes me crazy. And so I have every kind of potion and spray and pre-emergent to put on my grass because I want it to look the same. Stuff grows up around my really beautiful tall fescue. And here, this farmer had a prevention problem. He didn't pull out the bad, right? He got lazy. Perhaps even not the bad. Maybe even good, but not fruitful. See, even what Jesus says here, the list of weeds or these things that are going to choke it out, they're not, they're not bad things. They're just things, maybe even good things. He says that there's uh, worries, Riches and pleasures. And the warning here is how these things can crowd out what God is doing in us and what he desires to do through us. So take worries for an example. What do we worry about? Do, we worry about good things, right? We don't worry about bad things. I mean, you didn't wake up this morning and, and start to worry about, man, I sure hope I don't lose my addiction today. Like, that's not stuff we worry about. We worry about the good things. I worry about my kids. I worry about my deferred compensation and how it's doing. I worry about a crack in my surfboard and when I'm going to have enough money to replace it. I worry about my health, uh, when it will decline or continue to decline. I worry about a door ding in my truck at Costco. <laughs> These are all good things to worry about, right? They're not bad things. Is it hard for you to see how daily worries of good things, of daily worries over the blessings God has given us, can get in our way? Is it hard for you? Me neither. So the second thing he says is riches. And, you know, let's just say, stuff is not bad. Stuff is good. Savings is not bad. 457s are not bad. Retirement funds are not bad. Life insurance is not bad. These are all good things. I have two cars. I have two really good cars. I have a trailer. I take vacations. I have a boat. Actually, I don't have a boat. I have the best boat you could ever have. It belongs to my daughters and son-in-laws. <laughs> but I can use it anytime I want. It's the perfect boat. Because on that day, when it's not working, I just call them up and say, your boat's not working. <laughs> I left it here. <laughs> Honestly, I have, I mean, from where I came from, I have way more than I ever thought I would have. 
And that's not bad. It's actually really good. I think that God blesses us. But, you know, it doesn't matter how much you have or you don't have. Whatever we have can become a trap. Isn't that true? So whatever you have, is it really a stretch for you to consider how that stuff, that's good stuff, could ultimately have you? So that God is slowly crowded out? Is it, is it too far of a stretch for you to imagine that God could bless you so much that you're so busy enjoying your stuff that you don't have time for God or His church? Or is it too far of a stretch to think about your retirement years, about like, well, just being retired means that I'm just going to like go and do whatever I want and just kind of check out spiritually? Or is it too much of a stretch to think of you know, all this opportunity right now that you have in your job or your career, and you're grinding, you're moving forward. It's so good to be able to advance and to better yourself and to better your family's situation, but your family can click down in priority. And uh, being a dad or a mom becomes third or fourth on your list. And serving others in some ways, you're too busy enjoying your stuff. So I don't think that any of us would have a hard time imagining how good things, wealth, could get in the way. And then last is pleasure. Jesus mentions pleasures choking us out. Pleasure's awesome. Pleasure's my favorite. You know what brings me pleasure? Vacation. Vacation is a fantasy pleasure zone for me. It's like you wake up and there's no list to do except for the fun stuff you want to do. And it's like, is it, how many people love vacation? Just raise your hand. Come on, all the vacation lovers. <laughs> I used to not. I used to be so hard driving that, like, you take a seven-day vacation. I really wasn't on vacation until Wednesday. And I, that's when I would take my watch off. And I just noticed that's, that's when I started vacation. So a week vacation would be, like, actually three days. Because the last day of vacation, you're just thinking, i got to go back, right? And I have to tell you, I love vacations. Now, I think I could do it full-time. I love you guys. I love this church, but I love vacation too. And I love almost everywhere we've ever gone on vacation. In fact, I start to fantasize every time we go on vacation about what it would be like to live in that place that I'm vacationing in. Didn't you guys Zillow wherever you go on vacation? Like, I wonder what it would be like. These are my people. I just found my people. Again. <laughs> So you don't have a hard time imagining how the pleasures in life could get in the way, do you? Me neither. So Jesus identifies these things as he explains the parable because we're susceptible. And he, he, he's, not, he's not saying freak out. He's not saying like swing the pendulum the other way and never have fun, never have stuff. But to be on guard... And to keep those things trimmed back in our lives so that the fruitful things, the fruitful life that God intends for us, grows. So all three of these things, whether it's worries, riches, or pleasure, they can create a giant weed infestation in the garden that God is, that he has us tending. 
in the world. And then the fourth thing he says, the the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. So it's real simple. They hear the word, they retain it, and through perseverance, a crop is produced. So that's the parable. And you guys know, if you've been traveling us, we have these questions that we're asking, and I'm not going to put them up. They're on the back of your note sheet, but I want to ask one question this morning. And uh, I hope you're enjoying, like, thinking through the scripture, like, through that grid. But what do we learn about following Jesus? I mean, the parable has already been explained by Jesus, right? So we don't, we don't, it doesn't need a lot of explanation. In fact, like, for me to do it, I'm feeling a little insecure right now. Jesus already did it, right? So what am I going to add here? Um, But I do want to spend just the, the last moments that we have, like, kind of bridging that context from who, you know, what Jesus was saying in the first century to you and me, wherever God has us, whatever age we are, whatever strata we fall in, whatever our economic uh, position or education, here we are in the Temecula Valley in 2022. Number one, the parable of the sower and the seed teaches us how important scripture is to a Jesus follower. Doesn't that come out to you guys? Scripture is really important. It's central to conversion. It's central to transformation. Paul said that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. So feeding my heart and my mind, the teachings of Jesus, following the life of Jesus is the only way that I can become like him. In fact, he said in John 15 that without me, you can't do anything of himself. We have to stay so tied to the teachings and life of Jesus. And I love how the first psalm puts this as well. Psalm 1-1, most of you are probably familiar with this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose life, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. So every Christian, whether you're a pastor or a teacher, whatever you are, a mom, a dad, like we need a steady diet of Scripture in our lives. We need to read it. We need to listen to it. We need to learn it. We need to contemplate it. We need to like process it with others in life groups and in other ways. But this parable says a lot more than just read your Bible. The seed here is not the limiting factor. You see, there's, there's no su- supply-side issue with Scripture. All the Scriptures that God wants us to know and embrace, they're not out on a container ship outside the L.A. Harbor right now. We can't get to them. The Scriptures are ready, readily available to us. See, the parable of the sower and the seed teaches us that a Jesus follower cannot just listen to God's word or study it, but must apply it. There's a reason for all this seed scattering. Why does a farmer plant seeds? Because he wants to produce something. Vegetables and fruit or grain or food for livestock should turn into milk with his cows. And you know, if a farmer has a few seasons 
of non-production, they're done. They're broke. And all that work is for nothing, which is why I really I wanted you guys to listen to the Paul Harvey thing on God Made a Farmer. Did anybody do that? Okay, three of us. All right. You need to watch it. Because hats off to the farmers in this country. How many Christians, though, have non-productive years, year after year after year? And all that seed, all that Bible study, all that investment doesn't translate. What's the crop? What is, it's not rocket science here. We don't, we don't take in Scripture just so we can know stuff. There's a crop that God wants to produce in us, and it's called the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to put it up there. Let's, let's just read it. Can we read this together? You guys join me. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit. So all the seed sowing is so that that will be produced in us and we can help others to grow a similar kind of crop. Now we've talked a lot about this because it's a common cultural thing, but why do you think that there's so much division among Christians today? And, you know, it is, it's baffling to me how Christians have turned on each other over all kinds of issues, but there's a podcast I listen to um, by a guy named David French, and he has several, but one's called Good Faith. And in it, he said this, that all disagreements and debate can be and should be good. Our differences should be something that's really good for us. But one thing is necessary in order for that to be so. And it is the fruit of the Spirit has to be present in that disagreement. Does that resonate with you? And if, if, it, if it's not, and maybe you can run through some of like the debates and arguments and dialogue that you've had in recent years, and if the fruit of the Spirit isn't there, then that difference is going to push you apart. But if we have our differences in the context of the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to produce in us through His Word, then those differences will make us better. We'll be more understanding. We'll have a more robust perspective. We'll be challenged in the areas that we need to be challenged. And we'll, you know, things that we thought we believed will maybe be proven to be not so true. The way the scripture lands on us should be producing the fruit of the spirit. And if it isn't, then there's something wrong. There's something really, really wrong in the process. And if that sounds a little harsh, Coming from a pastor, your pastor, let me assure you that I'm not just preaching at you. I'm talking about me, too. And don't ask anyone in my family for any stories. <laughs> because, above all, this parable, it's a cautionary parable. It's a cautionary parable. What do I mean by that? It's like, when you're driving down the road, you'll see caution signs, right? It'll be flashing lights. 
It'll say, slow down. You'll start to hit those bump strips. And that's all to tell you something's around the corner. Something's about to change. And it's, it's telling you, hey, 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 pay attention, pay attention. Something's about to happen. There's a version of that that um, in the grocery store, when you walk out from the grocery store, you know those yellow bumps? Is that like a total overkill or what? <laughs> like you're just like walking along and all of a sudden it's gong, 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 your bottles are breaking, stuff's falling out. It's like, really? You had to make the bumps this big? It's like moguls, you know, in the Olympics or something. This, this time in Jesus' ministry, it's a transition point. Up until this time in his ministry, Jesus has been largely traveling from town to town up in the northern part of Palestine, in the region of Galilee, and he's been healing, and he's teaching, and he's interacting with people, and people are following him, and we've seen him putting a team together. But from here on out, Jesus' ministry is going to take on a different aspect. In fact, I've been encouraging you to follow along in the videos that the Bible Project has done on Luke Acts, and you should go to video two, uh, because you're going to see how Tim and John and that talk about how Jesus is going to start to move toward Jerusalem. And when he does, he grabs a gear, and he gets more serious, and he starts to quiz the disciples rather than just teach them. And the dialogue that he has with people intensifies. And he, he, he imposes upon them that they really need to think about the things that he's saying. And then he starts to give them assignments, homework, a practicum on the things that he's been teaching. It's like student teaching or internship. They have to do their clinicals. And in this section alone, just the, just the passage... The section that we've been looking at from part of chapter 8 through chapter 9, Jesus begins calling for a response to his teaching. And th this is in your notes. You don't even have to fill anything out. But he, he says, you know, you don't take a light. I've been giving you all this light. You don't hide it under a lamp. You shine it. He says, uh, someone comes to him and says, hey, your family's outside when he's teaching. And he says, my brothers and sisters are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. That's my family, the people that do what I say. He's in a boat with the disciples, and the storm comes up, and they're, they're panic-stricken. And they're like, Jesus, we're going to drown. And he calms the sea, and he says to the disciples, where's your faith? You, you don't trust me in a storm? Jesus restores sanity to a possessed man. And his life is going to be wonderful and so different after that. And he finishes it by saying, you need to go home and tell how much God did for you. You need to go tell people about this. A woman, Jesus is in a crowd, and a woman seeks him out for healing to touch him. And Jesus asks who did it. And it's not like he didn't know. And no one steps forward, and he basically waits until this woman does so because he's saying, you need to identify yourself as someone that touched me. There's a synagogue leader, Jairus' daughter. She's really ill. She's on death's door. And Jesus says, <clears throat> don't be afraid. Don't fret about this. Believe 
and she will be healed. Then they've been, his disciples have been learning and traveling with Jesus. They've been observing and training. And Jesus says to them, you know, I've been spending this time with you, equipping you. I've been giving you skills. I've been preparing you for something. No, God, now go out and do it on your own. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a section in your Bible that probably says Jesus feeds the 5,000. But, you know, how that story goes is there's a crowd of people. They're hungry. The disciples' solution to that is, Jesus, you need to send them all home. And um, he says to them, you feed them. And, of course, he partners with them. But he involves them in that feeding. <clears throat> Jesus asked the disciples in private, who are people saying that I am? And then he turns that dialogue directly to them, and he says, who do you say that I am? And he's calling them to, verbal, to verbally consent, to confess that he is the Messiah. And then you have this parable here, the sower and the seed. And it's a cautionary story to those who are hearing all of his teaching to say, it's supposed to produce something in you. And on occasion, all of us who name the name of Jesus need this kick in the pants. Not to give us guilt or to discourage us, but to remind us and to advise us to make us aware of how much is working against us actually succeeding in being a representative of Jesus in the world. Because there's a real satanic being that will do everything in his power to steal God's truth from us. It's really easy for us to develop shallow and hard hearts which in turn create shallow and flimsy faith. And it's really easy with good intentions to allow all kinds of things, good things in our life, to crowd God out so that we can keep our religion without reflecting the center of that religion, Jesus. So this caution by Jesus is to say, if you're, if you're a Christian, you, we can't just flirt with the teachings of Jesus. And we can't just assume that because we take in a lot of Scripture, there's like this automatic change. Because of all these obstacles working against us. In fact, if you just... I realize I'm really getting out on an imaginary limb here, but like 75% of the investment is worthless. There's only 25% return. So what are the chances, the real chances, that as the scripture lands on people, they will really produce what God has designed for it to produce? I'm going to have the band come up, and I want to ask you guys, while they're coming up, what's the difference here? What, what's the difference maker? What, what would you say? Shout it out. Okay. Let's, let's put it up there. 
But the seed on the good good soil stands for those who with a what? A noble and good heart hear the word and retain it. And by persevering, they make a crop. So the difference is the soil, right? The soil is the heart. And so really, I think that this parable should be called the parable of the soils, because that's the thing that's, that's, the, that's the, the pivot point. The seed was the same. The same scripture, following. But the heart is the receptivity factor, which means a couple things for us. These are my final thoughts. First of all, all the scripture in the world is not going to help us in any way if our hearts aren't open and pliable and soft. That's what comes out. We could take in all the sermons, all the podcasts. We can read all the Bible studies. If our hearts aren't open and genuine, then it's not going to produce what God designed for it to produce. So in every church, there has to be really good teaching, but there has to be really good listening, too. That's on all of us. And the second thing I think that comes out of this is, like, ask yourself this question. If you're a farmer, what's the smart thing to do as you scatter your seed? Someone help me. Pray? Yeah, I bet farmers pray a lot. What else? But if you think more practically. You're just throwing this. Water it. Someone's calling in an answer right now. I just heard the phone ring. Look at the soil. Yeah. A smart farmer casts the seed on good soil. So for those of us today, like we're picturing ourselves like the scene here is like we're, we're casting God's scripture into the world, right? Where do you want to throw that scripture? We're going to throw it on good soil. How does God create good soil? He creates good soil by churning up our hearts, right? He creates good soil. Often, our hearts get churned up through pain. Is that true? Tragedy, loss, trials. And so often, this is what I see. This is, this is from Brit, okay? It's not scripture. Like, I see a lot of Christians casting scripture out into the world, declaring it, pummeling people with it, throwing it out there. Like, I'm giving the word. And nobody's listening. The people that they're saying it to, they're not listening. Why aren't they listening? Because their heart isn't open and pliable. So that's like throwing your seed on something that is like it's never going to take root. And often that, that casting of seed looks more prideful than it does helpful. So track with me here. You have a neighbor, you have a coworker, you have a teammate, you have a roommate. You have someone in your family, a husband, a wife. And you want to reach them with God's word. Throwing the scripture at them when their heart isn't open and pliable is a waste. What should you sow instead? You should sow love. If we sow love now onto the people in our life that are not ready to hear the scripture, what we do is we earn the right later when they have a trial, when they have a loss, when they have a tragedy, when they experience something that makes their heart open and pliable, we earn the right by loving them 
to give them the scripture when they're ready. But if we keep throwing scripture on people without love, it's just throwing it away. So we have an opportunity today, you and me, in this day and time, in this valley, in a world that is just going crazy in all kinds of ways, everybody's included, and I'm not picking on the left or the right or like your grandma or your crazy uncle. It's like, it's just nuts out there. And we have the opportunity to demonstrate, to live out the fruit of the Spirit, to love people in a way that when that moment comes, and you've probably experienced this. They, I had crusty old firemen walk into my office as a chief who, who made fun of me. And then their wife left them. And they're like, I need some help. That's when it happens. And because I'd been so loving to all those crusty firemen, it's a different way of loving. I had an opportunity. And so have you. You, you know what I'm talking about. How about we do that? How about we so love until God gives us the opportunity to plant the seed when it's ready? Let's think about that. That's a sower in the seed. And you don't have to be a farmer to understand it. With those thoughts in mind, would you stand and let's worship together. Thank you. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.